out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall, and as always, we love our indie pop. And uh, we also love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the mumps, because I spoke to one-time member Christian Hoffman very recently to find out about life, love, poetry, all that other kind of groovy stuff. And after a few minutes of casual chat and getting to know each other, we got down to that very exciting um, period of just reminiscing about those early musical moments in our lives. I was talking about the uh, glam period of the early 70s and then talked about David Bowie and um, Christian came back and started to talk about T-Rex. So this is the interview and uh, like I said, we launched straight into it really. Um, And for those who don't know who the Mumps are, they were an American punk band who was fronted by Lance Loud many decades ago. The 70s and early 80s. Anyway, this is the interview. Enjoy, make notes. I will test you at the end to make sure you are paying attention. Enjoy. We were very lucky to be able to see the very early incarnation of T-Rex at uh, the Whiskey A Go-Go in Los Angeles, and I think it was like in 1970, maybe, 1971. And he was just turning rock, and he decided to uh, destroy his entire guitar with a tambourine. And also the hippie guy who played bongos didn't show up. Right, that was... Um... So they were going to have this kind of like weird moment, well, should we go on or not? And then he just destroyed his guitar on stage. So yes. that was fun. Well, in the 60s, and obviously I was definitely not sort of aware of it, but John Peel, this DJ, had a, he had a radio station on the Pirate Radio, Radio Caroline, the Perfume Garden. Yeah. I think it was the 1967, the Summer of Love. And he was, you know, introducing everyone to the world that was, you know, Jimi Hendrix and the Doors. But he also used to play a lot of that early Mark Boland folky poetry, very sort of... Oh, my God, those albums are so bad. Yeah, And I have them all on the original UK imprint. I know. And I but... tried to wade through them. It's like that hippie shit hobbit stuff. It's like... <laughs> but the, the covers are beautiful. I know, when my people were But then when he finally decided to go rock, and he was so wildly under-informed about rock, it was per- I mean, you know, transparently, Ride a White Swan was a game changer for him. But yeah, uh, absolutely. It, it was fantastic when he twisted that way. Yes, I know. And then he twisted in the... Various the, other ways. Yes, in, in the mid-70s he'd gone... And then he ran into a tree and died. In a, in a mini, in a mini. With, <laughs> as a, yeah, dear, that was a, that was a sad moment. It can happen. It can happen. I mean, such a superstar in a mini. That was such a weird one, really. Of all the cars to go and die in, he he had a mini. So um, I mean, like, why didn't he have a driver? Yeah, well, he was a driver. Well, no. he would have had a driver. <laughs> yes. Well, he would have been, had a bigger car. He would have had a much bigger car <laughs> than a mini, being driven by his wife at the time, who I can't remember her name, but she had that single, didn't she, which was... Um, I am not going to go down there. I know it's on Wiki, and I know that she was really talented and marvelous, and I can't remember her name. Yes. I'm not going to pretend I do. Tainted Love. She did the original version of Tainted Love that Soft Cell did later on. So um, somebody out there will be getting... Wait, is that really true? 
Yeah, see, really. I'm writing this down. Do do write it all down, and uh, and if anybody's no, li- no, but I just I don't know that. I mean, I know a lot of ridiculous ephemeral stuff, yes. but I don't know there was a different version of Tainted Love. I thought it was like some really early, like late fifties soul singer, so I didn't know that. Mm. All right, I got it. I've got it written down already. <laughs> yes, I, I, I have it under "Run into a Tree." Tainted love. Tainted love. Um, so, God, I know. Wait a minute. I'm going to have to. Um, Gloria Jones was the person who was. Yes, I've, so I've got she it. was. She was driving the car mini, and she was yeah. the one who had her big hit in the. Um, yes. And you, you just don't think like people don't drive fast enough in England to die in car accidents. It would be it would be hard. That's, no. that's what we do in L.A. I know. She was probably going about twenty three miles an hour, and was looking at her watch or having a sip of, of of some very expensive wine, and then there happened to be a big Dickensian tree. <laughs> <laughs> it just sounds kind of like a fairy tale to me. Like that can't really happen, can it? No. So yeah. So she recorded in nineteen sixty five the hit song "Tainted Love." Yeah. There you go. I, I have it all written down. We have. Got, we can. We can do some research later. But look. So what? So anyway, we're just. Uh, we're not even close to your life, are we? So what happened in your teen years that sort of brought you into the world that before the the uh, the, uh, the musical moment? So what were you listening to musically? Everything is patently obvious, although no one believes it to this day. It's like we were regular teenagers in Santa Barbara. There was no American family. There was no documentary. There was no nothing. And and uh, there was a weird thing because we would go to Santa Barbara High School, and there was this guy who would shoplift any records for you, and he'd sell them to you for a dollar. Nice. You know, and records at that moment cost $3.67 which seemed unimaginably expensive. So we would just say, can you get us the Stooges record? Can, you know, what, what, what's it called? We Will Fall. We listened to that for about, you know, three years in a row. And uh, we also, but we also got Days of Future Past by the Moody Blues. We just would write down any radical thing, and this shoplifter would go and get them for us. And then Lance taught me to shoplift by the time I was 17. <laughs> <laughs> so we would go out to this record store called Magnolia Records in Isla Vista, which is where all the college students lived. And they had a big riot, and the police came and tried to kill everybody. And we hid in the phone booth and were laughing and laughing. But in any case, we shoplifted a whole bunch of records from there, and that's how it kind of started. And we kind of learned about, uh, you know, because my parents actually bought me for Christmas a subscription to Melody Maker. And the only reason I wanted Melody Maker was because I'd already seen the New York Dolls, and it was the only magazine that would write about them. And then through that magazine, we found out about uh, T-Rex and David Bowie, and then we would go out and get those UK import versions, and we'd listen to them assiduously, and that's how I became the warped and ugly person I am today. Nice. It's a nice nice journey. But look, so for people... Actually, include myself here. Um, an American family. This was your moment, wasn't it? No. No, no. no. But you were you were best friends with Lance Law- Loud. Yes. 
And but he, no, I, 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 it's kind of my kind of hard to understand that thing because it's because we ran around through high school, we were con- completely vilified, everyone hated us, and yet we just loved to dress like rock stars. I'm sure now we're not alone in this. I'm sure that everyone, every high school across America had their outcasts who liked English pop and were buying import 45s. That's going to happen wherever you're going. And I, I know many of those people like Amy Rigby or like loads and loads of people who did that when they were younger. And um, so we were doing that. And then when the cameras came along, we just thought like, well, this is natural. Like we dress so fancy and we buy really good stuff at the thrift stores. So, not, But we had a band like every other person had a band. We didn't do a band because of American Family. We were already writing songs and being absolutely ridiculous, and because we got a little bit of attention, you know, we got a couple things on TV, and they were vilified, and everyone hated us. And then we moved to New York like everyone else did when they were 17, and you found out that it cost $100 to get an apartment. And that's where we were. Yes. And that's why I ended up in this huge musical family. It is That part of the story isn't very interesting to me. It's It's like... Every single piece person I know right now is one of those people that moved there. Right. Yes. And then it wasn't difficult at all. It was easy. Yes. And I mean, at that time, my my sort of basic kind of knowledge is that New York had been kind of abandoned. You know, that it was it was, it was it, it, at the point in the newspaper it was consistently called white flight, and it sounds uh, kind of racist, but they said. That in the newspaper, they said that the Jews who used to own the Lower East Side didn't want to live there anymore because they thought that black people were moving there. So they would go to the suburbs where they could get a more modern house for less money and they could rent out these houses. And they actually thought that Manhattan was over. And that's the only reason. Like I had no, I didn't even have a job when I signed a lease. I would just say, like, okay, I'll pay you $100. And they let me into four or five different apartments, which I completely failed on the lease every single time. And it was the same with all of my musician friends. We just were looking for a place to live. I lived on the floors of my friends' houses. But it was a very weird confluence of people. Most of the people who moved there that I knew, and of course I'm typically a white person, were... um, very invested in the Velvet Underground. So we wanted to get close to Union Square in case we might see Andy Warhol. And I moved from Santa Barbara with Lance with that purpose. Like, we weren't even any smarter than that. We just thought, like, we're going to get there to New York City, and then we found out it was so inexpensive. And then, of course, after American Family happened, you know, we were on Dick Cavett, which... Young people probably don't even know who he is, but it was a big talk show at the time. Yes, and well, then a few members a... of the band decided, like, well, we're just not going to leave. We're already here. We can't afford a flight back and forth, so we'll just stay in New York. So we did. And then various, after various members, the mumps somehow occurred. But that, that, but also over the course of that history, it's like I became best friends with Richard Hell. He got made a job at Cinemabilia. Like I think one thing that people don't really understand is all of those bands were friends with each other. I would go over to Paul Zone's house in 
Bensonhurst or wherever he lived with his parents, and all of the members of Blondie would be there, and his Paul's own mother would cook us some hamburgers, and it was a very friendly, weird communal atmosphere, like we were all in it together. Yes. Now, now, am I boring? No, jeezy, queasy, no, not at all. I mean, I just thought talking to... I mean, at that time, there had been a lot of exciting stuff going on. There had been things like the con... Uh, co- coquettes, that's it, isn't it? Um, that's we it. were friends with them. The coquettes. I had pictures of me with them. When they, we actually were friends with them in San Francisco. One of the first things that I ever did when I was 16 years old was I went with Lance to San Francisco to see Sylvester do his solo a show at some theater there that I don't remember the name of it. And it was also, I think I had my first gay sex ever there. Some guy picked me up on the street walking out of the theater, which was nice because yes. I'm basically not very cute. But, um, yeah, but we were friends with the Cockettes. And then when they came to the West Village and they had their first show there, about half of all the punk rockers were there to support them. And we all have, we have pictures of them outside of the theater. And, yeah, we were, and, uh, also, oh my God, uh, Jabrius. Wait, I'm going to get this wrong. Yes. But the guy who put the flower in the rifle in that famous picture in Life magazine. Yes. Uh, I'm going to get this wrong. I think it's Jabrius, but it, it, it's a cockette. I don't think it's Jabrius, but the, that is a cockette, and he was paid to put that flower in the rifle. Nice. Yes, because because that's. I, I'm going to have to write you about this. I have, to, I have to secure this because this is so long. But also, that guy used to come over all the time to Pat Loud's house in New York because he couldn't afford to buy dinner. Because <laughs> there was because obviously there was a big explosion from the '60s period into the '70s where a lot of things had started to be. I have as... to ask you for a promise. Yes. Will you promise to let me correct that fact? Because the guy who put that thing flower in the rifle was really important to us, and I don't think it was surprise. So I want to correct that. Yes, do do. Yes, okay. we will we'll just take that out. So um, yeah. Yes. Well, any, anyone listening? Just just uh, yeah. Just, yeah, if there is anyone listening. If this is <laughs> someone will listen. I mean, yeah, because I just did an interview with Faye from the Coquettes, actually, and um, so she gave me a brief history of what what that kind of. Oh, she, well, then she'll know that Faye Ed Hauser. Faye Coquette. I don't know. Fayette. Fayette. It's Fayette Hauser. Right. Who lived in San Francisco when she used to live with Tomato in the Wilton Hilton in Los Angeles where the Screamers all lived. Yes. And uh, and everybody seemed to do, well, she was often talking about the main person called, oh God, what's his name? The, um, he was the main kind of mover and shaker of the Coquettes called, uh, it begins with an H, which I will remember in a second, actually. Cause, oh, um, Hibiscus. Yes. Hibiscus was the kind of the main person. So when you... So I think that's the guy who put the flower in the rifle. Gotcha. But it's a a very, very famous moment, and it's been in every magazine, and it's on Wiki. You can just look it up. Yeah. Like, who was that... And he looks like a straight guy in the picture, and it was this crazy fag artist. Oh, good. So So you... You were the songwriter and the keyboard player for, for... I was by default the songwriter and the keyboard player. It was like in the beginning, like, I didn't have any idea what I was doing, but no one else was doing it. And I thought, like, well, we have to have a song or two. So I just wrote them, and 
they, they, you know, I kind of, it, it was kind of like, <laughs> uh, sorry, impossible, involuntary vomit. Like I had to force something out of myself because no one else was going to do it. And then after a while, I began to enjoy it. Yes. It, I and did. then I became a big bossy cow, and I like I'm writing this song, so I'm the guy. <laughs> Had a fancy idea of myself, which is good. You you kind of need that useful yeah. confidence and and enthusiasm. Well, also the songs are good. Yeah, and did I you? I don't have one single regret in my songwriting career, which is odd to be able to say, because <laughs> I can look at people I love, like Rufus Wainwright, who I've been friends with for years, and they can think like. Maybe he shouldn't have released that first single. <laughs> I don't have that issue. Which is fantastic. I mean, did you, because with, you know, I've interviewed a lot of bands and they often take a while to get a sound together, which is something quite memorable. With, with your, you know, outfit, did that sort of click into place quite quickly? I'm not, I think that click into play is quite quickly is kind of British. I'm not quite certain what you're asking. Well, I was, I was, I was saying that, uh, did it, you know, because often, you know, when bands get together, you know, they're playing in front of basically just their friends and family and anybody else they can emotionally blackmail to see them. But then oh, yes. with this, you know, with, with a lot of the bands in the 80s, it was often, there was a DJ called John Peel and John Peel played. Yes, I know who he is. Would, would give somebody that sort of suddenly like, People around the whole country, if not Europe and occasionally America, would suddenly hear, you know, hear them, and they would be able to go and tour in front of people who didn't, you know, who weren't connected to them in some way. Or... I would say that that absolutely never ever happened for us. Never. It was a total struggle from the time I was seventeen till when I when I moved to New York and we finally got to play CBGBs and I was twenty four and I was the oldest person in the room. I was unimaginably old and they thought, Who's that guy here? And we had been struggling to have a band all of that time, but from the time I was seventeen, we couldn't find any place to play. People were really unpleasant to us. We had some opportunities. Uh, we had five drummers quit on us, which set us back every single time. Like the first time we got into CBGBs, that we were playing with J.D. Doherty, who went on to play with Patti Smith. Then he quit a quit our band because he got to go play with Patti Smith, whom I introduced him to, <laughs> sadly. But um. But over the course of the next few years, when everyone else was having a burgeoning career, we couldn't do anything because we couldn't get a drummer. So it wasn't easy for us. We struggled and struggled and struggled and struggled. And then we finally got to be a fairly medium popular band at CBGB's. We had screaming girls throwing their underpants at us, you know. But I think that happened to everyone. Yes. But, but it, no, it, it wasn't an easy road, and it took a whole lot of dedication. And it also, you know, we got lots of um, negative reviews. We weren't really punk because we were too pop. They, they gave us reviews like, they sound too much like the kinks. And I was thinking, like, well, was that a bad thing? It's just... And then we got some support later on, and it, it actually went fairly well after that. But it, it, it was hard to stick together, and then we broke up. You know, it... None of that was easy, but the good thing about it was that it was a huge community, and everyone I knew went to CBGB's and Max's every single night, and we knew everyone there. We always got in free. We always got free drinks, and we got to see every single person who ever played there. So, yes. I mean, that's how I became friends with the Cramps. It's just... 
it's it's one of those crazy things. It was a fantastic community, but it wasn't easy. No, it wouldn't. And being well, the, the, that road particularly is it's a tricky one. And yeah, so with Max's, because I think it was um, Tony. Is it Zanetta who um, was in Pork, which was part of that kind of Andy Warhol scene? He, I did an interview, interview with him recently, and he said that uh, Max's was a really important kind of place on the scene for people to hang out, especially in one particular room. So is that your... Oh, yeah. What, yes. what was your memory? Yeah, of course, the back room at Max's was the... When Lance and I first moved to New York, where you would go to see people would be to just go to the back room at Max's. There's like the bar, and it's on the first floor. It's not upstairs in the club. And... So on the first floor, you go by the regular bar, and then there's a little sit-down place with some booths where they would actually serve you whatever lousy food they made there, which I imagine is a hamburger or a piece of salmon. And then when you went to the back room, that was where you thought you could meet Andy Warhol. So Lance and I would stand at the corner of the back room looking into that dark arena, and then because Lance had been on an American family, like a cheap ticket, that's what we were, Glenn O'Brien, who was the editor of Interview Magazine then, would invite us to sit at his table because he, he kind of sardonically thought we were a lark. And he thought like, oh, we can just laugh at these idiots. And we'd be sitting there with Glenn O'Brien and, and Fran Leibowitz, who was also one of the editors of Interview Magazine, and then Alice Cooper would certainly come over to the table, or Lou Reed, or all of these people that we idolized. And of course, we were so out of our minds with respect and adulation that we couldn't think of one single amusing thing to say. But you were actually surrounded by the Warhol crowd and all of these early 70s outre superstars. Yes. It was just like in the legend. It's like if you said, like, Oh, I'm going to look at 16 Magazine, and I'm going to go meet Bobby Sherman, and then I'll just go to his house. It was like that. It was <laughs> like you just walked in there, and all the people they said were in there were in there. Wow. Man. I by, by Eric Emerson from Eric Emerson and the Magic Tramps decided to just French with me without asking me. <laughs> it was like, like he just leaned over on the table and stuck his tongue down my throat. It, it was a very bizarre circumstance. It didn't help us in our career. So. No. We actually had to go home and write some songs. So at that stage, you know, from the sort of mid-70s to the 80s, were you sort of working on the band 24-7? Was it sort of, or was there other things in your life as well? I, I, what actually happened is we were idiot people in high school in Santa Barbara and thought we could have a band, and Pat Loud, who I'm still very good friends with, um, uh, she said, you can use our garage as long as you include anyone who comes in. So we are the whole bunch of strays that went in there, and then we tried to make a band. And then we kind of fell off of it, and then Lance and I decided to move to New York because we wanted to be near, like, famous weirdos in Union Square, like Andy Warhol, which worked out to some extent. And then we weren't working the band there because we didn't know how to do it. And then we moved back home with our tail between our legs, started another band, brought them all to New York with us. Everyone quit and left us there. And then um, we moved into this hotel on 72nd Street, I think, which is called the Belle Claire. And it was inexpensive at the moment. And um, we lived there with J.D. Doherty until we got a band together. And we just asked people to help us. And when J.D. quit, 
our friend Ian Norris from Milk and Cookies gave us Paul Rettner. And our, our friend Duncan Hanna, who's apparently relatively famous now, was an artist at the time. He has a book out. He got us Rob Dupre. He said, I have a, this friend who's going to be your guitar player. And then we all just stuck it out in a lonely room with no amplifiers and fucked around like idiots do, hoping for something to happen. And then because I was working at Cinemabilia, it happened. You know, it, because that was run by Terry Ork and my coworker was Richard Hell. And he said, I know where you can get booked. And so one of our first shows ever was opening for television to about four people. And then it kind of turned into this crazy movement. But I think all of the people who came to CBGBs in those few early years were coming there because they had this thing they kind of had to do and there was no other place to do it. And they found each other like a bizarre tribe of wastrels. Like there was a thing that they used to have in the back of, um, it's, it's, it's not cream. It was rock scene. It's the very cheap magazine. That was the rock coverage magazine at the time. And they had a place for pen pals in the back and loads of people I met then. And even know till this day were pen pals from the back pages of rock scene where they said like, I think Jane County looks like fun. They'd write that note to each other and then they'd come stay at our house or talk to someone we knew or join a band or said they played bass. It was just like that. It was like a like the way I met Ann Magnuson was because she said I was tired of my college in West Virginia and I didn't know where to go. And I just happened to meet her at some magic show we did together and and then we've written albums together since then. It was you know, it was just it was like what you imagine being able to meet people outside of coronavirus yes. should be. It's like you just go crazy, you leave your parents, you walk into this completely unemployable circumstance where all of the apartments are empty, so they're really inexpensive, and everyone you know or want to know moves there too. Which must, a, I mean, the thing I think it's only comparable to, say, Nirvana in Seattle. Like, I don't know another story that's like some sort of community just arrived out of nowhere because people didn't have any place else to go. I know, it's a weird one, isn't it? It's just, um, yeah, it's just kind of, it sounds so magical and romantic as well, but I expect at the time... It, it didn't was, seem so at the time. It didn't <laughs> seem so at the time, did it? No, not at all. But in retrospect, it seems like wildly impossible. Like, yeah. how could I know every single one of those people? Like, how could I babysit Ivy's cats. It's like, how would that happen in another era? I know. Did you manage to, dog, have you managed to sort of keep a, a record, an archive of that period for yourself? I have written a whole lot of diaries. In the beginning, I was writing diaries because I thought they were really fun and I was a scrapbooker and Duncan Hamm and I were kind of in competition out of who could get a coolest picture out of a French magazine. So those are extant. And then I didn't write anything during the most important times when I was actually a member of the Klaus Nomi Band, the Contortions, the Mumps, and the Swinging Madsons all at the same time. I, I don't have any record of that. But then afterwards, I got into Alan on. I'm afraid. And so I was directed to write a diary. So I have a lot of diaries covering when I was touring with Dave Davies and Rufus Wainwright and when I was trying to do my first solo albums and all that kind of stuff. So I have a lot of coverage of that stuff. There. Yes. 
Yeah, when I die, someone will have to archive this stuff at some cheap university. <laughs> because most bands I've interviewed, especially the 80s ones, they have a five-year narrative. You know, they, Like I said, they get together, they have that 12, 18 months of kind of trying to yeah. get something. John Peel would give them a play. Then they'd do the John Peel session. The first album, generally quite good. Second album, that's when things were going wrong. And then they split up because, you know, by then the band. So once... Once you got into the 80s, you know, your, yeah. your first musical adventure, it sort of finished. Did you have a well, moment? Well, my first musical adventure started in 1975 when we first played at CBGB's and the Mumps started. So that we went all the way through that era. Yes. And we played right up till 1980. And then in about 1981, I guess, I met Klaus Nomi at the, no, I think it was 1980, at the New Wave Vaudeville show. And uh, that girl who used to manage contortions oh my god what's her name i'll find it out for you later but in any case anya phillips that was her name who died of cancer a year afterwards but she said why don't you call up that weird guy with the high voice and so i just called him up and i said can i start a band for you and he said yes and so also the early 80s i was actually writing songs for klaus nomi which were being released on major label labels which they stole all of my publishing form from me, which was typical of the era. It wasn't like something surprising. You just knew you were never going to get paid for anything. But also at the same time, I was touring Europe with Lydia Lunch on drums. You know, All you did was just ran around and just said yes, and you could do anything you wanted. You would be in the most ridiculous situations. And, I mean, we were headlining, me playing drums with Lydia Lunch, we're headlining some jazz festival in Rome in about, I'd say, 1982. And she had lost her voice. So she just said, play something low, and I'll lie on my back, and I'll just scream for the whole concert. So that's what we did. I don't think they liked it. I think we might have gotten a few bad reviews, but he would like just appear in Rome. And, you know, I'm from Santa Barbara. I don't know anything about Rome. <laughs> and you'd play at this jazz festival, and then the girl who got you there would say, like, I'm just going to lie on the ground and scream for 20 minutes. And I said, like, okay, that's normal. Yes. And working with Klaus, I mean, there was one of my favorite songs that I can't say how many I've got. I've got quite a few. Valentine's Day. Is that one that you've... You must be very no, familiar. I don't even know anything about that. What is it? <laughs> no, that was one of... The, that appeared on a compilation at the end, I guess, one of you. Oh, Klaus? Yeah. And he's singing a song called Valentine's Day? Yes. Check it out. I'm not familiar with it. Yeah. But you... Did, so. you, did you work on his debut album? Well, I wrote Totally Clips. I wrote... Four of all of his hit. I wrote "Simple Man." I wrote "Naomi Song." <laughs> you know, I wrote all that stuff. He's identified after the fall. I wrote all that stuff. Yeah, I was his first band, and, and I directed all of those sessions. But I don't know anything called Valentine's Day, so that must have been afterwards. It might be "Man Perished." You know him? I mean, not not well, but I do know the but sort of. He's the, a synthesizer player, and he worked with Klaus, and they wrote some songs together. And I'm not familiar with them. Yeah. So. And it's possible that that was him. And how did you meet Klaus? I met him uh, at the New Wave Vaudeville show. I, I, do you know that story? No, I don't. You can, you can look it up on Wiki. It's very easy to find. Yeah. What happened was that Ann Magnuson had moved from West Virginia, and she wanted to be a director. You know, she'd gone to theater school in West Virginia, and she wanted to be a director, and she met up with this girl named Susan Hannaford, who was living with Tom Scully at the time, and this 
a lot of funny stories. I saw Stephen Kramer's mother's underwear while she climbed up a ladder, and Stephen Kramer, who was in the contortions, jumped off the roof and landed on his face, had to have his entire face reconstructed, and then he got divorced from Patty Astor. There's a whole long story there. But in any case, uh, so uh, Anne Magnuson, Susan Hennifer, and Tom Scully were going to do this variety show, and they actually put up these... Um, Xeroxes, and they said, we're looking for Nazis, ex-slaves, and freaks. And that's all they said. Mm. And we were the people who turned up, and then they just got this theater called, at first they did it in Club 57 in the basement, but then they moved to the bigger theater called Irving Plaza. And the very first show of that was uh, David McDermott was the host, and he was very funny. And he actually sang a song I wrote there's no wave like the new wave, and the new wave is the no wave. So I say yes, yes to the new, new, no, no wave. It's kind of funny. Yes. But in any case, he's saying that he lived in 1891. That was his lifestyle. He didn't have any electric in his house. He lived in an old uh, a townhouse up near Central Park. He had done all the wallpaper himself. He wouldn't allow anybody in there who wouldn't live by candlelight. He actually got arrested for removing all the electric outs, but he was the original host, very talented and funny and a great painter with his friend Peter McGough. And um, yeah, so we just did this variety show, and the whole idea of the variety show was you can stand to sit through anything as long as it's under three minutes long. And that's how they got the talking dog, and they got Jimmy Destry's uh, sister, Adana Destry, to host the uh, giveaway um, date night prize and one of the dates you could get was Lydia Lunch and the other one you could get was James Chance. <laughs> like, can you imagine? Those days you'd be stabbed on them. It was just ridiculous. It was, just, it was a clown show. Everyone just... It's, it's hard to imagine. It was like being in college only you had theaters available to you for your most regrettable moments. Wow, that's that's quite something. So when, because Klaus is quite, I mean, yes, I mean he's 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 quite an extraordinary artist and act, isn't he? Did it? Um... He is, and, and that story about him that's been repeated many times is that he was uh, Aunt Magnuson met him while he was in Union Square, and he was on top of a snowdrift singing a cappella. This is in the movie and everything, so it's easy to access. Yes. But Anne actually declares that is not true. She just met him at an audition for the talent show. But I, I knew him from then. And, and, you know, after the first show, which I was hosting and playing in, and Lancelot was playing in, you know, the guy from the Mumps. And um, what do I think? I... Saying Society's Child in a Ku Klux Klan outfit, which was interesting. Yes, because <laughs> that's a song about racism. <laughs> but in any case, uh, and um, and I got these two girls I knew who were thirteen and fourteen to wear Negro masks. But Klaus was at that show, and then Anya Phillips, who managed the contortions at the time, she said, "Like, why didn't you just write a song for that guy?" And the next day I call him, and the next day he said yes. And then I wrote those four songs, and they all got recorded. And then they were kind of, they weren't immense hits, but they were top 20 in Germany and top 20 in England. You know, they did fairly well for some weirdo fag with no hair. (laughs) (laughs) 
Wow, quite. And then obviously David Bowie also sort of, because I went to see the Bowie exhibition, David Bowie is, and I think there was a, one of those kind of outfits that Bowie performed next to or in front of, which was based on Klaus, wasn't it? Yeah, too little, too late. I, I will tell you that the one thing that happened for Klaus that was fantastic is like he and Joey Arias, whom I'm still friends with, and you should contact him on Facebook if you want to talk to him. He's very available. His name is Joey Arias. He, he worked with Klaus all the time, and he was the one who sang back up with Klaus Nomi when Bowie was on Saturday Night Live. And um, Bowie was wearing this weird plastic tuxedo, and since Klaus couldn't afford any new clothes, he said, well, can I get your designer to make me one of those for free? And the guy did. He made Klaus his plastic tuxedo. I don't know what the designer's name was, but he actually took pity on Klaus and made that, and that's on the cover of the first Klaus album. And so that kind of came out of Bowie. But I think that uh, the one thing about Bowie, and I totally adore him, and he changed my life. I never knew him. I met him about three or four times, but it was very briefly. But, um, you know, like in some weird lesbian bar. But um, he could smell someone who was gifted, so he always wanted to steal their act before they got famous (laughs) to shut them down. And he did that to Klaus. He kind of, like, said, oh... You're singing this high, weird opera shit? I'm going to do that and make you be my backup singer, and then you will always be subservient to me. <laughs> he, like, ran around the world, like, thinking, like, oh, they're talented. I better shut them down. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's quite good. I quite like that. Yeah. Yes. He was also with the very first month's show ever. When we played at Foodie Heller's, we were opening for this girl named Cherry Vanilla. But the only reason he was there was because his cocaine dealer was there, whose name was Norman Fisher, which I can say out loud because he's dead. Um, But he was Bowie's cocaine dealer. So he just happened to, you know, Cherry Vanilla worked for uh, whatever company that Bowie was being managed by, Main Man. So she worked for Main Man. And so we were opening for her. So. David Bowie thought that'd be an interesting place to get his early evening cocaine. Nice. It's got to be done. It's a bit, <laughs> a bit like a bit like Horlicks. Where, where is cocaine now? <laughs> God, where are the good times? Anyway, look, so then the 80s. God, the 80s were a bit tricky, weren't they? Because everything started... Well, the first part of the 80s is from like about 1980s to 1985. I was still living in New York. I was in this variety of bands and I was working for Klaus. So also the early 80s, that was happening. And then after that, I moved with my band, Swinging Madisons, which wasn't particularly successful. We put out, you know, one record, and it didn't do well. Um, but and, and then I was in L.A., and every, it's, it's actually Lux and Ivy from the Cramps said, you, should, you need to move to L.A. There's cheap tacos, and the rents are really slow. <laughs> and so we just moved there, and then I ran around and did a bunch of other ridiculous stuff. Yes. Which and, ended up in a whole bunch of solo albums and that one thing where I do all the duets with everybody. And how did you, I mean, because at that stage, obviously the 80s was kind of, a lot of it was, you know, AIDS and people, you know, unfortunately dying. I mean, and obviously... Yeah, everyone I knew died. Yeah, every, bring, happy to bring that up. I know, sorry about that. <laughs> like, yeah, Lance died. <laughs> My best friend in the world. 
Dead sex. It's like that Klaus Nomi, they all died. Actually, Klaus Nomi, I will tell you, was a very sad story about him. It's like he's in the hospital, and at that point, the uh, AIDS was known as the grid. Right. Because it was gay-related immunodeficiency disease. It was about gay people, and so no one cared about it. And then they found out that people from Haiti were susceptible to it, and then uh, people who were heroin addicts were, were susceptible to it. So they called it the HHH disease for a while. And then if you were sick, nurses wouldn't uh, take care of you because they thought it was airborne. And so when I went to visit Klaus in the hospital before he died, um, you had to wear this immuno suit, even though it wasn't airborne. And then my boyfriend died of it eventually, but he was also a heroin addict. But it was a very weird time, and it was a very unfriendly time. But uh, where was I going with this? What's the next question? What, yes, what was well, that? It was, I was sort of saying the 80s had that sort of, yes, that, that kind of chapter, which was quite horrendous of AIDS. Well, that was hanging over the world, but it was also like a, a, a world of fantastic developments. They, you know, like uh, they opened the Pyramid Club in about 1981, and they said, just come here and do whatever you want. So I said, I'm going to do a show about just giving away rubber shoes or whatever. You know, we could do anything we wanted any day of the week. And uh, I, that was a time when my relationship with Ann Mag- Magnuson became closer. And we started our fake folk band, which we took to L.A. called Bleecker Street Incident. We were just making a joke like we all hated folk songs. So we did a whole bunch of earnest songs that were like, won't you please let us kick your dead horse? You know, it was like that. It was just a very, and then it kind of became an overnight sensation. And then she got to do a solo album, and I produced it. It, 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 I just think people who stuck with it and ran around and wanted to meet weird people who made you laugh did okay. It's not like I ever made any money, but I made records the entire time and played with really weird people. <laughs> so yes. My That's God. an accomplishment of some kind. It is. and But you kept, you know, you kept your sort of solo work going. And then you did sort of various kind of, uh, you did sort of very, you know, in the O years, O five. 5 you, you did several one-man sh- art shows in, in L.A. as well. I was... did that ridiculously enough. I mean, I, I, I went to CalArts on a scholarship. My, uh, I, it's funny because my art teacher in high school was named Jack Baker, and he was kind of a famous flaming little queen, but he loved both me and Lance, and so he got us scholarships to CalArts, and of course I was the studious one, so I went there for a couple of years, and Lance said, like, I'm bored, I'm moving to New York, and then after a while I was bored, and I moved to New York to live with Lance, too. But, um, yeah, we over the course of the 80s, we, I feel like nothing really changed. I mean, I was always attracted to crazy clown-like people who would do... I was in a band with Mink Stoll for five years. I was in a band with this girl named Abby Travis, who's a fantastic songwriter who happened to sing a couple of my songs. I was in a band with her for five or six years. I played with all sorts of... Uh, the Abe Lincoln story it was really fun with Steve Marmarco. He It was called Soul Rock Swing, and he had a band of about eight people, including a horn section, and I hate horns. They were the greatest people in the world. I did four solo albums. I did that album... You know, that has Russell Mayall singing the first song on it. It's like, it's, it's, the life has not been particularly remunerative, 
but I have played with all of the weirdest people in the world. Yes. I played with Alice Bag at the John Anson Ford Theater. And if you can imagine that, it's one of the most beautiful theaters. It's, it's kind of in a canyon next to the freeway. So when you're playing, a whole bunch of deers come out of the forest and look at you because they're so annoyed at you. <laughs> so you can look up from the stage and you can like, oh, I'm sorry, Bambi. <laughs> so what's, I've had a lot of very peculiar situations. I played at some opera theater <laughs> with Joey Arias in Portugal. I've done a lot of silly stuff. Yes, absolutely. And did you manage to sort of keep, I don't know, a certain ownership? Because most people get a real problem with their, I don't know, publishing, don't they, and sort of keeping... Oh, I never had any problem with that. Joseph Flurry, who's the guy who was the manager of Sparks, who came to the lesbian bar and signed the mums to our very brief record contract. He took care of me until he died, and sadly he died of AIDS as well. But... um he made sure that no one could ever get any of their hands on my publishing ever. And he actually, there's one of the people that was his partner who actually had to come out of the woodwork and pay me a couple thousand dollars this year because Joseph Flurry 20 years ago made sure that that guy would give me the money he owed me. But also I'm handled by this agency. I, this is really boring and you don't have to include it, but it's Wixen, Randall Wixen, and he's taken care of many of the great songwriters of our time, but he's also, he was a punk rock fan and he saw the Mumps play, I think, in some weird place on a cliff near the beach in San Pedro. <laughs> some weird club. I don't even know how we got there. And yeah. He happened to be there and then he called me later and he said, I'll take care of you. So that hasn't ever been a problem for me. Which is, oh, which, I'm yes. very blessed. And also Gary Stewart from Reiner Records was a big fan. I've been very lucky in that way. Yes. And, and, and as many of my friends haven't been that lucky. I know, most aren't actually. Because you did a, an epic piece of work, didn't you? FOP, which was, which, was what, which was one of your kind of ambitious numbers that came out. <laughs> mean the greatest record of all time the greatest record of all <laughs> like time i will go like the first greatest record of all time is revolver you can't really argue with that and then the second greatest record of all time is pop it's just like, but you have to listen to it to figure that out i'm very proud of that work yes <laughs> and it got 30 best of the year record reviews in various instances and then it sold about 200 copies the way of the world. I know. And did you? Because also, I don't know, fifteen years ago, you you know, you were involved in the film for class as well, or certainly were contributed to. I was interviewed for that film, and and sadly enough, Andy Horn just died recently, and he used to be married to Susan Hannaford, who I told you was one of the founders of the New Wave Vaudeville Show, and they were a couple. They were a troubled couple, but they were a couple that you know were good friends until he died, and um. But in any case, yes, so that that happened. I was in the movie about Klaus Nomi that, that was called, I think, Nomi Song, and Andy Horn directed it, and he was a good friend of mine from a band from New Wave Vaudeville. And um, so I'd known him for about 20 years or 25 years, and so he interviewed me and Anne and all, all of those relatively unknown weirdos that were all in the tribe. Yes, absolutely. I mean... And he lit us very nicely, I have to say. 
Which, he made me look like I had hair. I said, you can't put the light on top of my head. And so he would always move it down to it. <laughs> Absolutely. And what would you, I mean, your your life story is quite boggling, isn't it? What, but what would you say to a an 18-year-old self starting out with all the, you know, with... The experiences. I would say, first of all, stop listening to rap because that's music for idiots. <laughs> and then I would say, go out there and do whatever the fuck you want. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know what it's like. I mean, we lived in a bizarre arena of privilege. You know, now when I look back, back upon it, I didn't really know that my parents were upper middle, middle class. I didn't really know that if I moved to New York and failed, they would take care of me. I actually thought I was being a wild adventurer and moving to New York with no job whatsoever and no thing, nothing to fall back on. And we were going to be like the Velvet Underground. But we were truly very blessed in a weirdly white specific way. I mean, I had lots of black friends then too, but, uh, but it was, um, I think that we had it easier because I could always crawl home with my tail between my legs, and then I'd go back and rent another apartment for $17 a month or something. So we, we went to New York and failed several times, but the one thing that we had for us was our drive. We smelled something, you know, whether it was artistic inspiration or desperation or just wanting to have extra summer that our parents wouldn't meet, but we smelled something about making a community, and fortunately, because of the financial uh, position of the time was easy to do. I don't know if it's ever going to be that way again. I don't know who could even move into my neighborhood and went to rent a room for $100 and start a band. I don't know how that works anymore. It was so easy for us. Yes. Yeah, I, 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 I don't really understand how people... I mean, we have definitely had the drive, but it was easy for me to say, like, oh, we got kicked out of our apartment because I was living with three people that weren't supposed to be there. And the landlord thought like we were ruining it just because we painted the whole thing black. Like, how bad is that? <laughs> but, uh, but it, you know, it was, you know, it was an easy time for you to go back and forth between the coasts. And my, I come from an upper middle class family, which I didn't even know at the time. It was easy for us to fail and have something to fall back on. And I don't know if that's, you know, the Ramones transparently lived in a sort of cheap uh, apartment a section of uh, Brooklyn. I think it was called Bensonhurst. So they were living there, but they were living there in little tiny townhouses with their family, but they could get to CBGBs for 75 cents. Whereas we actually had to move there and, and rent an apartment. But all of these people made this community there because it was inexpensive and easy. And I don't, other than Seattle, and I think uh, in in that city in South Carolina, I, I just think I, I haven't seen that happen again where there's this instance where everyone just moves into one city and starts a band. Yes. It's a bit like I, I can remember visiting Berlin and someone explained, you know, this is when it was kind of divided with the wall, that Berlin was the place that um, other, you know, Germans would go to if they, because they, national service or yes, national service was yeah. compulsory. So 
you had to serve it. And, unless, and, and unless, unless and you Hannaford moved to as well. Unless you went so. to Berlin. And then so that's why you got all the kind of slight anarchists and freaks and everybody went there because it's like, well, actually. Yeah, like, and I think that's why Bowie and Eno recorded that album there because they wanted to be part of that movement that was about Ada exploring new sounds and being in a music that uh, scene that was open to that. Yes. Yeah, so it's just weird. And I'm sure it's happening somewhere, but I'm too old and I don't know where it is. But I lived through it three times in my lifetime where there were destinations where a bunch of weird, drunken art students who couldn't make a living could move to a city and start a band and fail and fail and fail and then finally get some attention and be part of a huge community. I mean, like... It's ridiculous. I was friends with television. I was friends with Talking Heads. I was friends with the Cramps. So I'm, I'm, and I'm still friends with the ones that are still alive. <laughs> but it's, you know, it was a weird thing that you, it, it was like that was our college, was just going to this place and making our mistakes in public. Yes, absolutely. Amazing. And, and I mean, because you've, you know, you've worked with so many, you know, with, You've got had such an amazing output and worked with so many people. I mean, what what work are you fondest of that you've fondest of that you've done? What you look back? What? what? What's I, because I you've you've done so much work for your you know yourself and for other people. I just wonder when you look uh-huh. back, what's your kind of fondest memory and what you're proudest of? You know that you think yeah that really is quite special. Well, I do love, I mean, the, the, the one thing that happened was, like, I was supposed to do a duet with Belinda Carlisle from the Go-Go. She was the lead singer of the Go-Go's, and she was one of my very best friends. <laughs> we used to see each other all the time. And uh, we were going to do a duet on a song, Paul Anka's Having My Baby. And that was going to be our joke. And we did a heavy metal version of that with Abby on bass. And we recorded the whole basic track, and then she called, got called back to France the day before we were supposed to record. <laughs> and, um, and oh, I'm sorry, I just can't record the vocal right now. And then I never saw her again, because she went to France, and she had this career, and then she was touring all over you know, America and Europe and South America with the Go-Go's, and she was back in that realm. But the record companies I had at the time said, like, well, if you're going to do a duet with her, why don't you just do an album of duets? So I really do like that album, and because I just asked every ridiculous person I know to sing a duet with me, and they all did. So it was super easy, but also I just still do that right now. Like with all of my friends who are musicians on Facebook and other places, we're actually doing a song. It's called, I wrote it, it's called Apocalypse Now and Then. <laughs> it's about the end of the world. <laughs> and since we can't visit each other, I'm just sending it around to everybody. And we're having them all do different versions of it. Like, I don't really have, I have a most fantastic tribe of incredible musicians and singers and songwriters I can just ask for, and they show up at any time. And also because of that weird thing, I don't know if we touched on this, but I became the musical director of this place called Brookledge. And do you know what the Magic Castle is? No, I don't. It's a tourist attraction in Hollywood, and it's it's basically been there for about 50 or 60 years. It was founded by a very famous musician, a magician. And it's where it it kind of attracts people who want to go get drunk and watch a circus. And they have a magic show in all of these different little venues and theaters in it. But the people who originally ran that place owned a theater from 1926 where, like, uh, you know, 
who who knows? Everyone played there. Marlena Dietrich played there, and then it was closed for about forty years, and they didn't know what to do with it. And the, the, the woman who owns it right now, her name is Erica Larson, and I was I went in there with one of the lead magicians at the Magic Castle named Rob Zabrecki, and he said, "Let's just reopen this theater." And so they reopened this theater from the twenties, and we've been doing kind of vaudevillian shows there. It, it, it's kind of like the original New Wave vaudeville. Like we just have whoever we want to come and they can have three minutes, and if they fall on their faces, we don't care. Like the recently deceased Ian Whitcomb played there a few times. It's just a fantastic circus atmosphere, and you can just do whatever you want. And then since, of course, the shutdown, we haven't been able to do anything there. But um, yeah, so I'm just still in touch with a whole bunch of ridiculous people, and we. But you know, my boyfriend and I started the Boswell Sisters tribute band. <laughs> we played at all the clubs in LA, and we played at Brookridge. It's you know, we just try and keep busy. <laughs> Absolutely, because I didn't realize that you you worked a lot with Anne Magnuson, haven't you? Well, yeah, I produced her big album. You produced and I her. Wrote all the songs for it. But uh, yes, but what I meant, I didn't realise that she w- had been a member of a band that I absolutely loved in the nineties called Bong Bongwater. There you go, the weird hippie yelling band. The <laughs> weird hippie, which which <laughs> I the, like it. it. I love her, and I've been great friends with her, and I met her at New Wave Vaudeville. And yes. I, I met her through that ridiculous show where I met Klaus Nomi. I met them both at the same place, and I said, like, why don't we do something together? And that's when we started the folks band called Bleaker Street Incident. But since then, I produced her album, Pretty Songs and Ugly Stories. I co-wrote or wrote all of the songs on it. I produced her Jariah tributes. I co-produced some of the stuff on her, whatever it is, uh, Moon Age Daydream record. You know, I've been friends with her for years and years, but we've also been great collaborators. And she's really good friends with Joey Arias as well. So, you know, she's part, she's part of the circus. She's And also, she has a whole lot of... She's done several solo albums without me being involved with any of them. And, of course, she's a television actress and been in a few movies. So she has a whole lot of other stuff on the ball, but I'm very privileged to have worked with her so much. Yes, so. and and because there was a song that um, she did with Bongwater, which is probably one of my favourites of all time. Is 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 she an amazing person to be with? <laughs> I don't. Know. It was a strange one. But, you know, I mean, she. You know, there is something quite special about her, isn't there? She is one of the wildest, most crazy funniest great people to be with she is one of those a kind of mutable like one week she's a vegan and another week she isn't but she's really she's one of the smartest people i've ever met i've had one of the most fun times i've ever had with her we drove across the country with just a drummer and i thought we were going to kill each other and we had a fantastic time you know she's just she's an amazing artist but she's also more multi-dimensional than i am like i'm just a guy who's a We'd write a song and maybe someone will sing it. And she's, you know, she's an actress, she's an artist, she has a wonderful husband, and she's also a singer, and she releases her own material, and she's a poet. And, you know, I met her when she was doing quote-unquote performance art, mm-hmm. when she was reading lousy poetry in a elevator in the Whitney Museum, and I I actually said, like, what the fuck are you doing this for? <laughs> Let's go start a band. And she said, okay. <laughs> so 
so we did that. But she continues to do that kind of spoken word stuff and poetry. Yeah, she's really amazing. Yes, Blimey O'Reilly, that is amazing. And and she can paint too, which is kind of undersung. Absolutely, God, that's yes. There's, a, it's a full life. So there's still lots of projects there, but we just have to sort of for the moment they're just on pause, aren't they? Well, I, I mean, we're doing this song that we're going to release cybernetically where we're just having everyone do a different version of this one song I wrote with all the musicians I know. And Anne has actually agreed to be part of it. So that's going to be something silly, but it, it's kind of like Shut Down Monopoly or Mahjong. It's kind of like, well, what can we do? We can't have dinner. We can't really go across the street. So I made up this kind of joke project that we're all going to be involved in. And it'll be silly, and it'll be three minutes long, and maybe it'll be lousy. But she has a lot of other stuff going down. You know, I just think that the weird thing is most people have home studios, but yes. there isn't any interest, as far as I know, and I'm old, so it might be happening for really young people who are much cooler than I am, in trying to put any sort of venture, venture capital you know, even a little bit of money into something like, what if Anne and I wrote a new single and you just put it out streaming? You know, it's it's just one of those things. Like, so we have to do all of that stuff homemade. But also we did that from the very beginning. We also made everything happen. Like almost everything we ever did, we made it happen by ourselves. So I guess we'll just do that again. Yes. Blimey. Well, this is amazing. I'm still walking. This is <laughs> in a slightly... And I have two cats. <laughs> Yeah. As long as they how old are your cats? The cats are fairly young and one of them's looking at me right now. He's six years old. Oh, that's very young. And he's very mean and he loves to destroy the furniture. Well, I know. They love to pluck away at those <laughs> sofas. Anyway, look, this has been Oh look, well this is fantastic. Look, um if there's anything that I think, oh my god, I've I kinda miss, can I just kind of ask you, you know, um Send you a message. Sure. Up. Yes. Yeah. All you need to do is like write me on Facebook and just say, "Be around the phone around this time." Yeah. Because, like I said, we only have a line phone. I don't have a cell phone, so I actually have to kind of be in the room when you call. No. Well, it's good. But other than that, I'm happy to blather on about anything as transparently. I don't like to keep any secrets. <laughs> and I, I think that the journey has been remarkable, and I'm very hopeful that other people are having a similar journey, and I just don't know about it. I mean. I could tell you everything you want to know about Lydia Lawrence. I could tell you everything. Which is... I mean, she sucked me off and she said my dick wasn't that big. Is that good? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's good. I mean, you know, Lydia, she still... It counts for something. She does, actually. Yes, well, yeah, there you go. That's showbiz, isn't so I... it? There you yes. go. Okay, so... look, this is good. Any, and any other little moments that you know could be just like, oh, that's nice to, re to finish off on? Yeah, I, I, I would love to celebrate mostly, you know, the music I've been lucky enough to make with all of these crazy people. So yes. you just ask me anything about any of them and I will tell you. Brilliant. Well, look, I'll keep in touch, but that's fantastic. And um, Well, thank you. Thank you. And uh, look, take care. Stay, stay safe, as we say now. And um, yes. oh, Who cares? I've lived through everything already. <laughs> I, know. I mean, I, I haven't been out of my house in three weeks. So I, I am taking care, but it's also like, yeah, it's like, tell Surprise, I've lived through all the plays already. I know, this is true. Look, take care, and um, thanks again, and this has been amazing. All right. 
Well, send me a little note, and if you have a link to other stuff you're doing, that would be great. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Okay, That's take right. care there, and have All a nice right, day. You too. Bye-bye. Fantastic. Thank Cheers. you. Cheers, bye. And that was my interview with one-time member of the punk rock band all the way from America, The Mumps, or just Mumps, and that was Christian Hoffman. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. I will be there. Keep it positive in these interesting times. Anyway, all I have to say is goodbye, stay safe, speak soon.